0: As we continue to make our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, I invite you to turn your attention with me this morning to the first chapter of Romans, where we will pick up the place we left off last time at the 21st verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, please. Paul is continuing here his role as a prosecutor, presenting the charges against mankind, against all of us, along with the terrible punishment that our crimes deserve. For we have suppressed, mankind has, that is, suppressed the knowledge of God. Paul has argued the knowledge of God that can be gained even from the very creation around us, in which his invisible attributes are clearly seen, and we have forced that knowledge, so to speak, into the depths of the darkest corners of our hearts. Now, it's still there, of course. You cannot eradicate the knowledge of God. It is, according to Scripture, all around us. You can cover it over, though, with denial and with substitutes, which is precisely what has been done. But the consequences for this are terrible. It is the wrath of God poured out on men who suppress the truth and do not repent of their refusal to bow the knee to God. Pretty soon, Paul is going to go more into the details of the judgment itself, the consequences, but not until he first finishes his description here of the morass into which we have plunged ourselves. Claiming wisdom, we have become fools. Had I the chance to go back and rename this sermon, I think I would have called it simply Philosophers. Philosophers, for that is what we have become, and truly are, apart from God, fools who think themselves wise. It's a Romans chapter one. But first to prayer: Our Father in heaven, give us this wisdom. We pray, for we know ourselves to be fools. You have shown it to us how foolish we are, apart from your grace, apart from your Spirit. For whom we now plead, send him, we pray, to open this word and illumine the word that he himself has inspired so long ago when first these words were penned. Speak, we pray, O God, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. For although they knew God... Last week while we were on vacation and as our family walked along in a museum uh, of display about the history of man, we came to an interesting section about the history of religion. And it was not surprising to find that the evolutionary theory that has so pervaded the thinking of many modern scientists has also come to dominate the minds of many anthropologists in the field of religious history. Walking along, reading the placards on the wall, I came to the understanding that the driving presupposition behind the information written on that wall was this, that religion began with animism, vague beliefs about spirits and the trees and sky and in objects and events. And then progressed to a sort of chaotic mix of polytheism, religions that name many gods by many different names. Then later, onto that polyistic, uh, polytheistic scene, developed the monotheistic religion of the ancient Hebrews, the, the idea of a single God, in other words was the new kid on the block in a polytheistic neighborhood. Animism morphed into polytheism, polytheism evolved into monotheism is the assumption, not unlike primordial slime, is said to evolve into cells and eventually into intelligent human beings. Well, that might be fine enough to satisfy the modern American mind, what there is left of it, attuned as it has become to think of all life in terms of evolutionary process. But that is simply not the way it happened. In fact, just as it has been in the fields of science, like geology and paleontology and so on, So, in anthropology, the study of man, there have been those who are willing to take a more honest look at the evidence, men such as Robert Brough, who has written in his book on the topic that the evidence gathered by anthropologists actually suggests that the origins of religion are monotheistic, one God. And that the polytheism and the animism uh, about which we read in history books or, or see in many places around the world today came later, after the belief in one God. In other words, if I may dare to contradict what the museum display says, religion actually tends to devolve rather than evolve. And that would certainly be consistent with what the scripture itself has to say. It is not at all the case that mankind, left to itself, will actually rise to a higher religious standard. In fact, quite the opposite. As Brow puts it, quote, research suggests that the tribes are not animistic because they have continued unchanged since the dawn of history. Rather, the evidence indicates degeneration from a true knowledge of God. Early knowledge of the true God came first, but he was replaced in the worship of men by a pantheon of gods and goddesses, not because they were better, but because they were lesser, and therefore less to be feared. But we needn't appeal to Mr. Brow or any other anthropologist for that matter, because God has spoken clearly in his scripture. In the beginning, God. Not God's not spirits and the trees and the birds, God. And God made the world and God made man and God entered into a relationship with man, a covenantal relationship with Adam. And in the beginning it was understood that there is but one God. Adam knew him. Adam spoke with him. Adam walked with Him in the Garden of Eden. There was no need to evolve any particular view of God. We started at the top. The human race started with a right and true and perfect, wonderful knowledge of the one true God. Then, sin. And it was all downhill from there. Since then, the human race, and I mean, of course, that portion of the human race that knows not the one true and triune God of Scripture, I say the human race in the darkness of rebellion against God has not grown closer to him, has not advanced to a greater form of religion, and with it to a higher knowledge and understanding, just the opposite. One form of idolatry after another has led unregenerate man into greater and greater and deeper and darker degeneracy. Oh, we're more sophisticated in our day in some ways than ever we have been. Technologically speaking, you can now stand in the middle of Central Park and And from a phone no bigger than the palm of your hand, send a message in seconds to the other side of the world. But sophistication itself guarantees no more, religiously speaking, than that we may be even more sophistically lost. Sophisticated in darkness. And alas, that is indeed the case so many today. The claims being made today by our sophisticated contemporaries amount to little more than pretensions to progress in religion and fall lockstep with all of the religions that together must fall under the apostles description of wickedness and folly described in those immortal words claiming To be wise, they became fools. Now you say to me that so many people of the world claim to be wise, but also say they have no religion at all. And yes, it is true that they say they have no religion, it is true that they claim to have no religion religion at all. They may call themselves atheists, literally believers in no God or call themselves agnostics, but but Paul has already addressed them in this letter. In the final analysis there is no such thing, objectively speaking because all men have a certain amount of knowledge of God. It is not that what can be known about God is unclear, even to them. It is what they have done with that knowledge. They have suppressed it, pushed it down, buried it under, under whatever form of idolatry they prefer over bowing the knee to God. Most fundamentally, the religion that predominates in America in our educational institutions and government institutions, along with places like modern museums, so many of them anyway, is the very same religion that entered the world on that dark day in the Garden of Eden, with only minor adjustments. It is the religion of humanism, humanism, the religion that places man at the center that determines truth according to man, according to our pleasures, according to our desires, to our minds, to our thoughts. Remember Satan's lie in the garden. To man, you shall be like God. The fact is, that very moment, Adam would be his own God. He would be autonomous and make himself the measure of all things. How puny his Godship and ours turned out to be. At that same museum last week, we were treated to a movie about black holes in space. It was, a, it was breathtaking to consider the reality represented on that huge screen over our heads, the vastness of space and of the universe. But the tour of this great creation, as you might anticipate, was poisoned by a nonstop stream of praises, not to God, to a God, to a God, to man. For all the wisdom and understanding that we have, that we've accumulated about our universe. I'm not sure, though, how many of us really grasp at the time the great paradox of the whole presentation. Because at the same time, we under understood or at least should have understood how little how very little we actually know or understand how our furthest missions into space amount to one thirty second of an inch on a ruler a million miles long when compared to the vast vastness of the of the galaxies. From the perspective of him who created all of them, we who claim to be wise must look the more foolish in direct proportion to our claims to be wise. So the narrator went on and on and on about all of this, all of these planets, the earth, the moon, the stars, the sun, the mind-boggling forces and matter instantaneously materializing out of a big bang could he or or any of us realize how utterly completely foolish our wisdom sounds to the maker of all things claiming wisdom becoming fools Oh, we've exchanged fruit for telescopes, a garden for a laboratory and classroom, and yes, a green forest for the stained glass windows of the cathedral. But the story remains unchanged. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became feudal in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The nature of this foolishness is not merely intellectual foolishness. In fact, it may not even primarily be intellectual foolishness in this passage. To be a fool in the Bible is not merely to be intellectually lacking, but morally lost remember in other places in the Bible, especially in the wisdom literature. You remember in the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so on. To be a fool is to be lacking moral judgment and fortitude. To be perverse and degenerate in one's behavior. But even in that part of the Bible, the theme remains the same. The fool says in his heart what? There is no God. As we make, make our way into the rest of, the, of this chapter of Romans, the Lord willing, we'll see that Paul uses the term fool in a way that is consistent with David's use and Solomon's use because the fool does a tailspin, you see. The fool does a tailspin from his intellectual folly and vanity into the depths of moral depravity. Seventy years ago, William Newell laid his finger on the twisted nature and intertwined nature of intellectual and moral foolishness in our own land when he lamented, quote, the silliness of these modern shallow pan days. How men are rushing back, To the old pagan pit out of which God's word and his gospel would have delivered them. They suck up sin. They welter in wickedness. They profess to be wise. They sit at the feet of professors whose breath is spiritual cyanide. They idolize the hog-sty doctrines of a rotten Freud and count themselves wise. They say God is not a person. Man evolved from monkeys. Morals are mere old habits. Self enjoyment, self expression, indulgence of all desires this, they say, is the path of wisdom. It is the path of those who go quickly down to the pit and to judgment. The very morals of Sodom are rushing fast upon us." Quote. Now, could any of us, from a 21st century perspective, say that he was wrong? <laughs> the wiser we become in this land the more we prove ourselves fools. But enough of the problem. We could easily fill the entire morning applying Paul's diagnosis to our own land. The lack of the fear of God, the failure to worship Him or give thanks to Him. But instead, I would that we take up now asking how it is that we may surrounded by fools who call themselves wise, surrounded by so-called the lovers of wisdom, literally philosophers who are, as a matter of fact, fool fools who think themselves wise, I say, how is it that you may, in such a context, make certain that you are no part of it, but rather a peculiar people, chosen and set apart by the Lord?" Let me begin by saying that that's the very first thing. What I've just said it must be the Lord who sets you apart. It must be He who chooses you, He who cleanses you, He who makes you holy. The fact is, apart from His grace, you and I, every one of us, are nothing more than fools ourselves. As Paul wrote in another letter and reminded the Christians in another place, they were once pagans themselves, once led astray by mute idols themselves. The only difference, Christians, between you and the fools who think themselves wise is that God's grace came to you, not the other way around. The grace of God came to you and saved you and rescued you from a life of self-deceived foolishness. But there is a life for you to live, Christians, now that, that you've been given wisdom, now that God has set you apart from the foolishness of the world, and it is a life that must be marked by three things. First, your life must be marked by the fear of God. By the fear of God. The classic mark of a fool... Is that there is no fear of God before his eyes? He says there is no God, in fact. Then, as the scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, then, fear of the Lord must be the first distinguishing mark of your life. What do I mean by the fear of the Lord? Do I mean that uh, you must hide in a corner and cringe and be terrified of the God of heaven and earth? Is that the fear of which scripture speaks? The late famous radio preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse is helpful here. Gives this wonderful anecdote. Not perfect, of course. None of them ever are. But this anecdote of what it means to fear God with a holy fear by the true and biblical sense of the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. He tells of a new bride whom he had just married to her husband, John. He had been her sweetheart from their youth. She had never had eyes for anyone else all of her life. Well, some weeks, into the, uh, some weeks after the honeymoon, Barnhouse met the couple at church and asked after some pleasantries, turned to her and asked whether she had burned the roast for their first supper. They laughed and she said, well, I was afraid that I was going to do it. I had read so much about the bride being unable to cook that I decided that John was going to have the very best meal that a bride could prepare for her husband. So I began about 3 o'clock. I got everything out and started to work. And when finally I put things to cooking, I was so afraid they wouldn't turn out. And then, of course, he had to be a little late. And I was so afraid things would be spoiled. And Barnhouse interrupted and stopped her and said, Well, wait a minute. You said three times that you were afraid. Did you think that... uh, John was going to beat you? Well, she pouted and said, Well, of course not. And she looked at him with all of the love of her heart in her eyes. But Barnhouse persisted. You said you were afraid. She broke in, You know what I mean. And of course he did. She was not afraid of her husband. Her fear was pure Desire to serve and please him to whom she had given herself completely in marriage. Barnhouse calls it this the fear of John that is the beginning of good cooking. Well, so you and I must surrender ourselves so completely to the Lord, so abandon ourselves to Him that we bend our every effort to please Him who has bought us by the blood of His only begotten Son. This is what it means to fear the Lord. And when we do that, when we we will come to true wisdom and knowledge and understanding for the fear of the Lord, that filial Love, reverence, biblical fear is the beginning of wisdom. Second, Christians, your lives must be marked by the worship of God. In fact, the fear of the Lord will send you to this, to worshiping him and that in every sense. Worshiping the Lord in the small w sense of the word, that is, as a way of life every day, living a life worthy of him and thereby demonstrating his worthship. Very close to worship by your behavior and by your words, by your actions. Worship all in this, also in the sense that you will meet with God in your own private devotions. Worship in the sense that you will bring, if you have one, your family to the worship of God at table. And then also that capital W, worship, which we give to the Lord in His house, as we are this morning. Every day, but especially one day in seven, it should be perfectly clear. Perfectly clear to you and to the fools who think themselves wise all around you that you are different. You are set apart. You are holy. As you make your way to the house of the Lord and those who think themselves wise are busy worshiping their gods in the driveway, washing the car and the yard, mowing the lawn, at work, dashing off for the overtime dollar, and thinking you a fool for wasting an entirely perfectly good day in the Lord's house and in fellowship with other fools for Christ, you will demonstrate who is truly wise and who is the fool. You will join the ranks of those who, like that ancient Christian alexaminos, are truly wise. The fools around you mock and jeer. You remember that ancient piece of graffiti, that second century piece of graffiti in Rome, that showed alexaminos worshiping, bowing before a cross on which hung a donkey. And the words below that said, "Alexaminos worships his God. Well, if those who scratch that picture into the, Pal- the Palatine wall could see him now, they would not think Alex Aminos a fool at all. Fools think it foolish to worship God. Paul says in verse 21, they do not honor him as God. One of the truest indications that you are no fool is that you do. Then third, your life, Christian, must be marked by thankfulness to God. For although they knew God, Paul writes, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. In verse 21, ingratitude is one of the surest indications and attributes of a fool. But how thankful are you, Christian? Would your family or your wife... Or your husband, your children, if you were to die today, would they be confident that you were no fool? For they had heard you thank the Lord for his good gifts every day. Man does not thank God for his mercy, for his goodness, for his dealings with us in providence, writes Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We take the sunshine for granted. We're annoyed if we do not get it. We take the rain for granted. How often do we thank God for all of these gifts and blessings? God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is the Father of mercies. Yet people go through their whole lives in this world and never thank Him. They ignore Him completely. This is how they show their attitude toward God. In this way, they suppress the truth That has been revealed concerning him by ingratitude. Striking thing in that planetarium during our vacation, the striking absence. As we viewed all that vast splendor on the screen, represented on the screen, not even one word, not even an implication of thanks to the one who stretched out the heavens and placed the stars where they are, who knows every one of them by name, and who holds them in their place where he has every second of every minute of every year for these thousands of years. Brothers and sisters, may we not even turn our eyes on the stars of heaven at night, but that it presses from our lips a whisper of praise and thanksgiving to God. May we not put one bite of food to our lips, but that we thank Him from whom all blessings flow. May we not enjoy one kiss with our wife, one day of fishing on the water, one drive in the country, one day of hard work and hard study, but that it draws from us thanksgiving and praise to God. These are the marks of the wise, the fear of the Lord before their sight, the worship of God with body and soul, And thanksgiving to God on the heart and on the lip. In a world filled with those who think themselves wise, but who are in fact fools. May God take us fools and make us truly wise. Amen.